people look at you now and see the self-made billionaire, did you always know this was going to be the success that it became? I've often been asked that question, and I think you have to look at it the other way. And that is, did you not ever expect that it could be? From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Linda McMahon, the chair of America First Action, a super PAC dedicated to supporting the 2020 re-election of President Donald Trump, a man she's known for decades. I first met President Trump at a Rolling Stones concert uh, in New Jersey. (laughs) Uh, My husband and I were his guests. And then we were business associates, business friends. That business, World Wrestling Entertainment, which she and her husband grew from a small business into an international brand traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Though she won fame and fortune as WWE's president and CEO, her path up the corporate ladder wasn't the typical one. When I first started, uh, and really just what would today be like an administrative assistant, you know, for events. Your wife wasn't typically supposed to be working with you in this particular industry, so I didn't use my name, Linda McMahon. I used the name Linda Kelly. Since leaving the WWE, Linda ran for Senate unsuccessfully twice and served in President Donald Trump's cabinet as head of the Small Business Administration. I recently sat down with her to talk about being a female boss in a hyper-masculine workplace, her biggest frustration with politics, and the advice she'd give to other women trying to grow their own businesses. Women don't often toot their own horn enough. And now, here's my conversation with Linda McMahon. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. You've had a lot of roles throughout your life, and right now you are chair of America First Action. For our listeners who are not familiar with that... Can you tell us what that is? Sure. Actually, I'm a chair. I'm the chair of America First Action and America First Policy. So there are two. But America First Action is the one we talk about the most. And so America First Action is a super PAC to raise funds for the reelection of the president. That is our focus going forward. So what is uh, what does that mean? What's a typical day in the life of of for, for you in that in those roles? Well, I've been on board since April 15th, so I have not been here very long already. So really, it's been evaluating personnel policy, learning myself uh, what the expectations of the Super PAC are, uh, setting our goals for fundraising, looking to see um, where we're going to focus our attention and how we think that the best way for us to lay out our plan for campaigning is to reelect the president. So a lot of the role of a super PAC is raising money, something you're no stranger to. But I was reading this morning that at least in some of the key states for the president, they're looking to spend at least $300 million. One of the big questions that comes up a lot on this podcast is whether it's women entrepreneurs or it's women who are running for office is the pressure to raise money and how hard it is often for women to raise money. What's that like for you? How do you approach it? Well, actually, and and the goal for the Super PAC is $300 million. And so that is clearly targeting uh, a lot of large donor, uh, large money donors, you know, to come in to, you know, clearly help us get to that bottom line number. Right. Uh, And so I'm just beginning at this, but I can tell you that the people that I've been talking to so far clearly want to come in and uh, be supportive of the president to help us raise this money. And the money 
is being really focused for six states because we we believe those six states are going to be key to the president winning re-election. So we'll be doing polling. We'll be doing voter registration. We'll be doing focus groups on the super PAC side uh, as well as on the C4 side, which is the policy side. But uh, we'll be going to different areas. You know, with the vice president, we have 10 mm-hmm. events planned for him. We've done one for USMCA. So those are policy trips. So we're fundraising, you know, in different elements. But, uh, but the 300 million dollars is the goal jointly uh, for us to spend that money. And so, so far, uh, I'm having good response to the outreach that uh, that we're doing. Uh, you've known the president for several decades. Um, do you remember when you first met? I do. I first met President Trump at a Rolling Stones concert uh, in New Jersey. <laughs> well, uh, my husband and I were his guests. And uh, it was at the stadium. And uh, we just had a great time. So the friendship was uh, was born at the Rolling Stones. <laughs> well, my my husband and the president had had met first, and then we were business associates, business friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were never social friends. Uh, we didn't go out to dinner with uh, you know with the president, well, current president, <laughs> then Donald Trump, uh, or his family. But our our relationship really was built through business activities, and uh, he was always a very good business partner. Shortly after the president was was elected, he asked you to run the Small Business Administration. What went through your head when you got that call? Well, he asked me to come and meet with him at Trump Tower. I didn't actually know what we were going to talk about. And so when I came and sat down and we talked about it, and he said, look, here's why I want you to do it. He said, I want someone in this role who has actually built a business. And he stressed with me the uh, importance, which I already knew, but it was good to hear from him, uh, the importance of small businesses in our economy, that they are the backbone, the engine of the economy in this country. And he felt that small businesses really hadn't had the focus and concentration that they really needed to have. And he wanted someone in office who could really be that chief advocate for small businesses. It's a big change to go from leading a private enterprise to entering uh, the public uh, domain, entering, becoming a public official, working at a big administration with a lot of people. How did you prepare yourself for that? Well, I had had an interim time. I left my post as CEO of World Wrestling Entertainment in 2009 and announced that I was running for the Senate in the state of Connecticut. But having run twice in the state of Connecticut... I really understood campaigns. I understood what it took. I understood what the messaging had to be. I understood how the the media can be your friend or foe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think all that experience was incredibly good for me then once I came into the cabinet position because I really did understand the basics of being on the ground and how much all of that meant to a campaign. So, So I think that was of great benefit. You know, a government job is very different than a job (laughs) in the private sector of being the CEO of a company where if you made decisions and you told people to act on it, you know, they acted on it. Right. It's a little bit different in government. It's a little bit more persuasion sometimes to get things accomplished and takes a little bit longer. So um, I kind of had to adjust to that groove. When you were nominated, both senators from your home state of Connecticut supported you, despite the fact you'd ran a run against both of them for Senate. Did that surprise you? I went to them. Mm-hmm. I asked them, would they, um, I, I've sat with them and I talked to them. And I said, look, I would be very pleased if you would consider supporting me in my nomination. And they both, without hesitation, said, I'd be honored. Thank you for asking. 
And I think that they were both in that process of the nomination were clear to say we didn't always see eye to eye. But in this regard, for this particular job in the administration, we totally support Linda McMahon because she has built a business in the state of Connecticut. We can attest to that. We can see, you know, what kind of CEO she was. And she's perfectly suited for this job. And they were very pleased to support me in it. At SBA, you increased the amount loaned to women-led businesses. Why do you think female entrepreneurs continue to have such problems getting that funding? Well, you know, I, I always hate to generalize and to say women. However, there are some some facts that really I think we need to help more women overcome. Mm-hmm. And those are that women don't often toot their own horn enough. And when they're going in to ask for funding, they're not often prepared with the business plan and make the sell as hard as they should with the confidence that they should. And so basically a lot of what we wanted to do at SBA was to make sure that through the women's business centers, the WBCs that were all over the country, that we had those programs to make sure that women did know how to develop their business plans. They knew how to market and they knew how to give that 30 second elevator pitch when they went in, because it's just key. It's no different for what men need to do to do the same thing. But men typically go in with a higher level of confidence to, to make their pitch for their loans. And so we wanted to make sure that women uh, receive that same kind of um, support system. Let's take a step back. Uh, tell us where you grew up, what your parents did, the beginnings of Linda McMahon before oh, you wow. are who all you are the, now. All the way back to then. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I grew up in a small town called New Bern, North Carolina. Both my parents were civil service employees. They worked at um, the U.S. Naval Air Force, I'm sorry, the U.S. Navy Marine Base at Cherry Point, North Carolina. My father was a shop foreman and my mom was a budget analyst. So I grew up in a a really terrific middle class neighborhood uh, in North Carolina where, you know, neighbors looked out for you if Uh, If you needed something to do, we all pitched in and helped. We had common gardens between our homes and that sort of thing. And uh, so it was a wonderful, wonderful way to grow up. I had a really strong work ethic. I'm an only child. Uh, So I was my father's son and my mother's (laughs) daughter. I was a great tomboy. Uh, I played with the boys more than I did with the girls. I could never jump rope. I could never, ever jump rope. But I could play first base in the baseball team and catch whatever they threw at me. And so, and then I played uh, basketball. My dad was a basketball player. So I was in your time. A lot of women didn't do that that time. There there were no girls teams, but I can tell you there was a a girl that guarded me all the time and she was so much taller than I was. I'd get so frustrated. So my father was watching one of the games and he brought me home. He said, I'm going to show you how to do something. And he taught me how to do a jump shot and girls didn't do jump shots at that time. So I was a phenom in the County. I could do a jump <laughs> shot. I love it. <laughs> so I had, I had a great background, you know, from two parents who were strong disciplinarians, but um, who really gave me, I think, the kind of background to make decisions for myself with guidance, but often would let me make a bad decision and profit from that error. (laughs) You met your future husband as a teenager in church, right? I did. Yes. Uh, I was um, 13 when Vince and I met, and he was 16, and I was singing in the church choir which if you ever heard me sing, you would wonder how that happened anyway. (laughs) But, uh, you know, he came into church and I thought, 
that's kind of a cute guy. I haven't seen him before. And it was one of those kind of, you look up and somebody's looking at you. And so you look back down, you look back up, somebody's <laughs> looking at you. So we met. And over the course of the next two or three years, you know, we, because I was, I was just 13. We, right. I couldn't date or anything yet. My parents wouldn't let me. So uh, we finally did start to date a little later in my high school years. And, um, and wow, but we got married when I graduated from high school. Wow. He was a junior in college when we got married. And so then I went to East Carolina University where he was and um, went on the fast track to graduate, graduated in three years. And he graduated, took him five. So he said, so we averaged <laughs> out to four. <laughs> he just like he just hated the academic part. <laughs> So, but wrestling was very much in your husband's family business. Um, did you have any sense that, like, when you got married, you were marrying into this wrestling franchise? Uh, not when we got married, except that I really did understand from the very beginning Vince's passion, you know, for this business. I mean, he had uh, he'd grown up watching his father in this business. Uh, he really loved it, and it was all he ever really wanted to do. As I said, he graduated from East Carolina with his degree in business. And then went on to try a couple of different companies out, and he just wasn't suited, you know, for corporate life. And uh, so finally, his his father took a couple of his suggestions that he had for the company, and uh, put him to work at mm-hmm. the company. And so Vince really learned the business of professional wrestling from in front of the camera and behind the camera, mm-hmm. if you will, and learned the business of it. And went on to develop a, a wonderful company. He and I. I started really working to help him do what he was doing. Because you didn't start there. You you didn't have this traditional path to becoming a CEO. After college, you worked as a paralegal here in the D.C. area. My major in college was French. So I graduated and passed the teaching exam. So I was certified to teach. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I came to Washington. I was, um, we found out the day before we graduated from college that I was pregnant with our first child. So that was quite a surprise and unexpected. So we had, we really had no job. We were, you know, we were leaving college and moving up to Washington, D.C. So I took the first job that I actually could get after our baby was born. And I actually started as a receptionist at Covington and Burling. Uh, And I did some typing in the typing pool and that sort of thing. And it was sort of mid-year and teaching jobs, uh, you know, were just not available at that particular time. But for someone who could just sort of read some of the general correspondence and give the probate unit a little bit of a heads up, I kind of got a foot in the door in the probate unit, and then they had an opening, and they agreed to um, to give me a try. And so that's how they, they trained me uh, as a paralegal in the probate department. Wow. So who that knew was, French was going to lead to who knew? Who <laughs> paralegal? <laughs> well, I think people look at you now uh, and see the self-made uh, billionaire, but it always wasn't like that. Take us back to the early days. You're working in a small business. It's all hands on deck. Did you always know this was going to be the success that it became? You know, it's, I've often been asked that question, and I think you have to look at it the other way. And that is, did you not ever expect that it could be? So it's not necessarily that you said, okay, one day this is going to be a company traded on the New York Stock Exchange, you know, seen in, translated in, I don't know, 45 languages, seen in 180 countries. I don't know the latest stat. I haven't been at WWE for a good while. But you just measure as you go. And I think our goal, uh, Vince's in mind, because uh, we, we were clearly a team, um, was to, we built each market, mm-hmm. just market by market by market, first out of the Northeast across the country. And then when 
the country was kind of under our belt a little bit. We looked and we did um, international expansion. Back in the 70s, you did have some financial difficulties. Oh, yeah. Uh, you lost your house, had your car repossessed. Yeah, we, we, we went bankrupt. What did you learn from that experience? Stick to what you know, because the wrestling industry that we were involved in is not where the bankruptcy arose. It was... Uh, according to a young accountant we had at that time, you know, your eggs are kind of all in one basket. You ought to diversify. So we invested some money into a couple of businesses, the the construction industry, which we knew absolutely nothing about. And that's where the real issues were, was in the construction. And so then we had to take the profits from the wrestling industry that we were doing well in Mm -hmm. to pay for the investments in these other businesses that were not doing well. And so, you know, stick to what you know and do that well. So let's talk about WWE, pro wrestling, hyper macho. I grew up watching it, you know, on Saturdays, male-dominated world. Was that ever a challenge for you? How did you kind of handle that that industry? Uh, being male-dominated? Yeah. Yes, it clearly was. And when I first started, uh, and really just... Um, what would today be like an administrative assistant, you know, for Vince, uh, because he was really the driving force and knew and knew the industry and the business. Your wife wasn't typically supposed to be working with you in this particular industry. So I didn't use my name, Linda McMahon. I used the name Linda Kelly. So Linda Kelly could talk to people on the outside and we could have them call in and we could do all of the things that, you know, I needed to do to help further and build, you know, the business and later you know, my position grew clearly because I wasn't just an administrative assistant. By then, I was doing more and more things. Right. And so, but I mean, take for instance, um, I was never even allowed to go backstage at that particular time. And so I think what we what we really did was kind of, I cracked that door a little bit, I think. And uh, then, then our daughter, uh, Stephanie, uh, who's now the chief brand officer for WWE, I think she kind of blew the door off its hinges. When did you become Linda McMahon? Was there all of a sudden a big reveal moment? <laughs> it just became more and more known. Okay. But I just, I really worked more behind the scenes. I was really behind the scenes and I was very happy being behind the scenes. But, you know, developing, you know, infrastructure and making sure all the trademarks and the copyrights and the financial people reported to me and uh, the human resource people reported to me. And so it was administration, overall operations that, you know, I focused on. Mm-hmm. And there was no need for me at that point, you know, to be up front. But we started, uh, WB started a magazine and I wrote articles in the magazine and was the editor of the magazine under the name Linda Kelly. So we would get all kinds of mail. Linda Kelly would get mail and all of that. So it was uh, it was fun. But then eventually I did become Linda McMahon. <laughs> Talk about that, though. I mean, the organization has changed a lot as time has evolved. But back in the day, there were a lot of sexist storylines. There were some more violent storylines. Did those ever, were you ever concerned about that? Or was that just kind of the cost of doing business? This is what people wanted to watch. Well, I, I think that, um, I, I, first of all, I was never involved in the creative. Mm-hmm. I never wrote the storylines. Um, and so I was never involved uh, in the creative aspect of the company. And I don't know that I would have done that well at all. Because WWE really follows, you know, current events. You know, what's happening. And, and a lot of the behind-the-scenes soap opera of WWE was based on sibling rivalries, uh, infidelities, um, uh, business rivalries that were there. And of course, they all got settled in a 20 by 20 ring, which was the stage for right. WWE. 
So some of the storylines, you know, were uh, you, you pushed the envelope when the programming was uh, TV 14. Mm-hmm. When it went back, to, you know, to PG, then those storylines were a little calmer. But pretty much following general entertainment trends, if you looked at where movies were at that time, what was television programming at that time, it was uh, mostly late night programming. So it, it fit the mold of the appetite of the consumer. As you mentioned, your daughter's there. I mean, it's now a family business. Your son-in-law, your husband all work for it. What's it like to work? And our son is a a, a performer. Yeah, yes. yes. (laughs) What is it like to have that kind of family business? Are are there pros and cons that you're running to? (laughs) There are definitely pros and cons, definitely pros and cons. And I think, first of all, when you're a couple, in fact, often if if I'm giving a speech and I'm giving a little bit of background and I will say, yes, that Vince and I did start the business, you know, sharing a desk. And I said, and, and we are still married. And then I'll make the joke of now it's 52 years and get get a lot of applause in the (laughs) audience. And I'll say, but those were not always easy times. And I said, because you have to make sure that you're not just going home with your business partner. You have to go home with your husband or your wife. And remember, you have a family. And if everything, every moment of every conversation and thought is strictly wound up in the business aspect, you kind of lose perspective. Mm. So I think you always have to have, you know, that kind of balance. I want to turn back to politics before we quickly run out of time. Uh, In terms of taking on more prominent public-facing roles, you ran for the U.S. Senate in Connecticut twice, as we talked about, um, and lost both times. How was running for office different than you expected? I don't know that it was different than I expected, except from one standpoint. I think it was very difficult. Even in 2009, it was 24-7 news cycle. It, it's, it's even more so today. But you're expected at all times to know everything. Anything that happened, you might be at a luncheon with someone and you come out and something will have happened somewhere in the world. Right. And the media was, is likely to ask you, well, what's your opinion on that? What do you think about that? So if you don't know anything about it, you're ill-informed. If you tell them, well, I would like a little more time to really think about that and, and, and have an opinion, well, you know, then you're not really capable of the office you're running for. Then if you give them that information and then later on you change your mind, you flip-flopped. So I think that is very difficult when you're running for office is that constant 24-7 news cycle and to try to hit it just right so that you're informed and you have reasonable opinions and expectations. Um, and pretty much that's based that's based on your gut. There's a lot of stats that show it's harder for women. They often have to be asked many times before they run. And then oftentimes if they lose, it's even harder um, for them to make the decision. They don't often go again. You did. You chose. You lost. You decided to run again. How did you make that decision? Was it was it harder to pick yourself up? I mean, after not being in public office and you know having that experience to say, you know what, I'm I'm going to jump back in one more time. Well, I felt that I learned a lot in the first campaign, having never run for office, and pretty lofty goal to have your starting goal be to to be the U.S. senator, right. uh, you know, from Connecticut. And I I'm a Republican mm-hmm. and clearly ran on the Republican ticket in a very, very Democratic state, still to this day is. So it's really an uphill battle to start with. So even though I lost the race both times, I was really proud of the fact that we really energized the Republican Party and over the course of the next few years made incredible gains in both the House and the Senate, which hadn't been uh, done before. So I really felt that while I was unsuccessful in my run for the Senate, I was successful in other ways. I was able to get different kinds of messaging out. So I was proud of that run. You spent 
I think $100 million or so has been publicly reported. Knowing how things turned out, do you regret the investment? Definitely not. Uh, because it was a goal I set out for. I knew the expenses that we were looking at. I did not fundraise, did very, very little fundraising, hardly any at all the first time, uh, a little bit more the second time. And I self-funded those campaigns because I didn't really want to have, uh, I didn't sort of want to hold a, an allegiance mm-hmm. you know, for anyone. And that was, that was what I thought about. So no, I don't regret uh, the, uh, the money that I spent for the race because I thought we put the money in that was necessary. And in Connecticut, Connecticut is a very small state, but you were part of the whole New York media market. So the expense of running uh, in in that state, it was very high because of the money that you had to spend to reach uh, to, to reach the population. Would you ever run for office again? I have no plans to run for office again. <laughs> I think I got that out of my system. Uh, I, I really wanted to do it, and I nobody could have worked any harder. For those, in, in fact, I, I really never had downtime because I ran back-to-back campaigns, and so I never really got off of the campaign trail. And I really enjoyed that, uh, but it was it was almost twenty-four-seven, and because Connecticut's a small state, you were out all day long. You know, I'd leave six thirty, six thirty in the morning often, and get home eleven or eleven thirty at night. I was up and out every day, and it was a hard road, you know, to do mm-hmm. that all the time. But I put everything I had into it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people of the state of Connecticut. Uh, so uh, campaigning was something that, uh, that I did enjoy. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. Special thanks to Jenny Amont for helping out with this recording. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 668 666.